we are very lucky uh, to have Julianne Weiss speak to us because she's been parachuted in essentially at last moment. Um, David Anderson, um, professor now at Fulham, Oxford, now at uh, Warwick University, um, sadly is unable to be with us today um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but his co-researcher, Julianne, um, they've been working together on this particular subject of today's seminar. Uh, and so please don't think you're being devalued in what you're getting. You want to get the full nine yards anyway. But Julianne uh, is a Wellcome Trust um, DDOL student here at Oxford, um, researching uh, interactions in Ethiopian state development of reproductive health policies, which we had a chance to talk about here at lunch, uh, and local, local knowledge and practices from about 1940 through to 1980. Um, she had her MSc uh, here in African Studies um, here at Oxford, and spent six years of, uh, now, of professional experience working with UNICEF, UNFPA, uh, and uh, various other NGOs on the issue of contemporary women's rights and reproduction, and certainly across South America and Sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, she was telling us uh, over lunch about her work uh, most recently in Ethiopia. Um, so here's some direct field work experience to get your teeth into. Perhaps you can answer questions about some of that, because that would interest people here as well. I'm sure. Uh, this is a very quickly difficult emotive subject. Uh, Julian, thank you very much for coming at very last minute um, to stand in. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. No, pleasure is all mine. I really do apologize to those who are expecting David Anderson today, though. I know he's a very dynamic speaker, and I'm sorry to <laughs> be the last minute stand in. Um, but I did co author the paper with Dave that he was meant to present today. And I was also one of the principal researchers on the larger Mau Mau legal case that you may or may not have read about, but that's what this research came out of. Um, but just to give you a bit of background about the case, it was brought forward to the High Court in London by four elderly Kenyan claimants, um, all of whom had been unduly tortured under the hands of the British colonial government at the time of the Mau Mau uprising in the 1950s. So the case ended in July of last year when the High Court found that the British government was responsible for human rights abuses carried out by colonialists in Kenya 70 years ago, including torture and rapes. This is a really landmark case and um, stipulated for the first time compensation packages for victims in Kenya. So those have been agreed, but the particulars are still being ironed out. Um, so I was one of the principal researchers on the claimant's case, and I, along with other, several other colleagues, spent many months of tedious labor combing through the hundreds of thousands of pages of new evidence surrounding British activities in Kenya during the Mau Mau period. And so though this evidence itself is also another large story. Um, it's a specific ream of documents and it's called the Hand Slope Disclosure. And it's sort of a presentation in and of itself. Needless to say, David Anderson and other historians were quite instrumental in these documents being brought to light. They, in their own research, they recognized a huge gap in official literature from this period and noticed existing Foreign Office records would allude to other documents then not available. The files were then released under the pretense of being merely misplaced since the early 1960s. And so having been through the length of them, I can tell you that they are quite grisly in their detail of rape, torture, cover-ups, and gross mismanagement in the colonial office at the time of the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya and also other colonial sites, including Cyprus. And, but this is just about Kenya. Um, so with the Hanslope disclosure and the court case, there's clearly a great deal of backstory to this talk. And, um, but today I'm going to narrow the focus specifically to the issue of sexual violence and prosecution of sex crimes, including rape and indecent assault at the time of the Mau Mau. 
My own academic and professional background, as you heard, involves issues of women's rights, health, and violence in Africa, both contemporary and historical. So over the course of the legal case research, Dave engaged me specifically to work on issues of rape and sexual violence in the Hanslope documents. We singled on the, out the issue of, it was singled out the use of rape and its prosecution in this period for several reasons. First, well, besides the fact that there's a lot of, a large number of cases documented. Um, but aside from that, there's a surprising gap in scholarship on the use of rape and sexual violence in the late colonial and post-colonial conflicts, either in Africa or elsewhere. Also, the conversations about instances and prosecution of rape and sexual violence in wartime have been somewhat clouded by discourses arising from the Balkans and Rwandan conflicts of the 1990s. The Balkans was a particular watershed for the discussion of rape in wartime because it was the first conflict in which rape was considered a separate and distinct war crime to be prosecuted. This related to the particular nature of rape in this conflict, used on all sides as a legitimate weapon of mass humiliation and, and punishment. In the Rwandan genocide, there was also a similar explosion of the use of rape by the Hutu militias, and again, discourses on the use of rape as a weapon of war, similar to the Balkans conversations, were unearthed and expanded. But what is problematic about these discourses is the way in, the in which they have been applied retroactively to all wars and conflicts. The Balkans' pattern of rape as a weapon of mass destruction is indeed not applicable to every conflict, including the Mau Mau, and it is important to nuance the, the discussion of sexual violence and war so as not to obscure the histories through generalized and anachronistic language. So again, this is one of the reasons why we undertook this work. So with this preamble in mind, let me launch into our own investigation of prosecution of rape in Mau Mau, and perhaps we can discuss some of the larger arguments about conflict and rape in wartime more generally in the Q&A. So, in the most recent court case, to go back to this narrative, one of the four elderly Kenyan claimants in court was a Kikuyu woman named Jane Mara. Jane's personal testimony described instances of sexual abuse. Jane was only 15 years of old, 15 years old in 1954 when she was accused of being a Mama sympathizer. And along with other villages, she was taken into a camp for interrogation. She was then pinned to the floor by four African guards who held her thighs apart, while another guard forced a glass bottle into her vagina, using the sole of his boot to direct the bottle deeply into her. The pain was excruciating, and Jane realized the bottle had been heated. When this ordeal came to an end, she was compelled to sit and watch as the other young women incarcerated were subjected to the same torture. So this was the first time that such a story of sexual crimes and the counterinsurgency against the Mau Mau rebels had been laid before a British court. But for Kenyans, the detail of these claims was all too familiar. In 1998, the publication of political activist Wambui Wayaki Otieno's memoirs had caused a stir with her revelation of her brutal multiple rape at the hands of a British police officer in a detention camp in 1960. Otieno's experience echoed earlier accounts from the 1950s. In his biographical account of the rebellion, Mau Mau forest fighter Karari Najama poignantly recalled his return to his home in Nyeri after the war only to find that his wife had been raped by a member of the local African militia, the Kukuyu Home Guard, and had borne an illegitimate child. This trope was even taken up by a distinguished Kenya fiction writer who you may know, Ngoi Wationgo, whose rebel hero in a grain of wheat, Gekonyo, returns home to similar circumstances. More recently, from 2002 onwards, the collection by the human, Kenya Human Rights Commission of testimony on colonial abuses brought to light a growing catalog of rape accusations, similar accounts 
being highlighted in Carolyn Elkin's monograph on the story of the British detention camps in Kenya, published in 2005. Elkins quotes from the oral testimonies of several Kikuyu women who related their experience of rapes and other sexual assaults while in custody of security personnel, including events very similar to those of Jane Mara. This paper provides the first documentary evidence from Kenya in the 1950s that both corroborates and enlarges upon these legal and oral testimonies and memoirs. Accusations of rapes and sexual assaults by state security personnel are littered throughout the Hanslope disclosure. With 9,000 files in total, approximately 500 of the files deal specifically with the, Ken the way the British dealt with the Kenyan rebellion. A significant number of these files relate to the investigation and prosecution of allegations against the security forces between 1953 and 1959, including cases of rape and sexual crimes. So the documentary evidence is quite powerful and important precisely because it relates to cases where investigations and sometimes prosecutions were initiated by the state at the time. So the existence of these cases may at first appear surprising. Legal attitudes to rape in colonial Kenya in the 1950s were generally unsympathetic to prosecution, as they were also in Britain at this time. While examining these papers for the information they can give us on the character and extent of social sexual crimes, we must also ask how is it that such cases were brought to the attention of legal offices at all. These assaults were committed upon civilian Kikuyu women by African and British agents of the colonial state, so the decision to prosecute related to the discipline and control of the security forces more than an interest for the protection of the victim. As we shall see, the colonial states got, sought to escape court hearings wherever possible by denying and deflecting evidence, generally preferring to avoid legal remedies. For the colonial authorities, rape was, quote, a difficult charge, that's how they said it themselves. Among victims, too, the new archival evidence suggests reluctance on the part of African women to seek formal prosecution, this being reinforced by the circumstances of the conflict which the victims were usually stigmatized as supporters of the Mau Mau rebels, while the perpetrators were servants of the government. The evidence on these cases thus provides a unique insight as to the way that rape was treated in a colonial context during the 1950s, and adds to the small but growing literature of, that addresses the question of how sexual crimes, crimes are or are not prosecuted in wartime. So to go to what Britain's counterinsurgency campaign was in Kenya, brief introduction, it was enacted between October 1952 and then ended with the ending of the state of emergency that had been declared in 1952 in 19, er, January 1960. So this was against the Mau Mau Rebellion and has been called a dirty war and it was an estimated 20 to 30,000 casualties on the side of Kukuyu. At the height of the campaigns in 1955, besides those deceased, over 70,000 Kenyans had also, were also held in British prisons and detention camps the vast majority being incarcerated without charges having been brought against them. So Britain concentrated efforts directly among the one million Kikuyu speakers of Kenya's central mountain province and Mount Kenya region, including civilians who were called the passive wing of the Mau Mau Rebellion. Draconian laws give the police and other security services wide discretionary powers to detain and interrogate suspects, a process known in Kenya by the euphemism of screening. This led to the reports of random and widespread violence against civilians, including sexual assaults, from the very earliest months of the conflict. So the member of the security services active in Kenyan emergency can be divided into three separate groups, the military, the police, and the home guard. The military 
was British Army regiments who had been deployed to Kenya to work alongside the King's African Rifles, which was a regiment of African rank and file serving under British officers. A third military formation, the Kenya, reg the Kenya Regiment, was made up of 300 or so recruits from the European white settler community, also playing a pl prominent role in intelligence gathering and in commanding African auxiliary forces engaged in civil security, including the pol Kenya police. Lastly, the Home Guard was a force of loyal, quote-unquote, loyal Kikuyu men in 1953, amounted to over 25,000 members by, by 1954. The British strategy was to pit Kikuyu loyalists against Kikuyu rebels. The Home Guard was heavily involved in prosecuting the war against civilians, punishing rebels and their alleged supporters alike. Within the new do documentary evidence available, there are many detailed and previously unknown allegations of rape and sexual assaults made against each wing of the British security services in Kenya. So to give you an idea of what some of these complaints look like, um, I'll briefly narrate three different examples of types of allegations. The first, from May 1953, describes complaints made regarding the, quote, many abuses of the Kikuyu Home Guard, including rapes of women, while they conducted screening in the Londiani division of the Rift Valley province. The official response acknowledged that abuses had taken place, but failed to address the specific allegation of rapes. At the same time, the complainant, a preacher with the local moral rearmament movement in the district, was privately informed that among the Africans who had told him about these events were some of the suspect, some suspected of Mau Mau activities. This was to become a familiar pattern, with accusations of rape being dismissed and represented as malicious efforts to undermine African staff within the colonial administration. The Londiani complaint was amongst a larger body of similar allegations that resulted in an internal investigation into the conduct of the Kikuyu Home Guard in the screening camps and the issuing of instructions to keep tighter control over screening teams, but rapes were never formally investigated. Another report from January 1955, two women were assaulted in the Home Guard camp at Makadara in Nairobi, objects being inserted into their vaginas in an act of torture and humiliation. These assaults were perpetrated by a group of Kikuyu women then living with Home Guard at the camp. Investigators described the assailants as prostitutes who had, quote, thrown their lot in with the government. Information supplied by these women had been used in security operations, and this accounted for their presence under the protection of the Home Guard. The case did actually come to court, and the assailants were convicted by the local magistrate. Evidence produced at this hearing showed that Chief Kyoko, commander of the Home Guard at Makadara, was well aware of the sexual abuse of female Mama suspects, and this was common practice at the camp. After this incident, Chief Kyoko was transferred from Akadara to rural Meru and given the rank of Sergeant Major in a new Home Guard unit. So the last, the third example comes from early 1956, when two women alleged that they had been raped in a labor camp in Machakos district by the African headman in command of the camp. Initial investigations revealed that other Home Guard and tribal police had also raped young girls at the camp. Yet despite acknowledging that, quote, the headman took full advantage of the sexual opportunities that his position and the detention of a number of girls presented him with, colonial officials elected not to prosecute because of difficulties establishing the question of consent. The accused men claimed that the women had consented or the men simply denied the assaults. With contradictory accounts, lack of medical evidence, and no other witnesses willing to give, the prospects for conviction remained slim. So 
These examples are typical of the many references to such cases in the Hanslope disclosure that begin to illustrate the range of issues raised by rape allegations. Um, but I'm going to deal for the rest of the talk with sort of a more coherent picture from the cases that were formally reported to the Chief Security Complaints Coordinating Committee, or the CSCCC. The papers of this committee are amongst the most important sources revealed in the Hanslip disclosure. Initially set up in mid-January 1954 as a watch committee to, quote, receive complaints of ill-treatment by members of the security forces and to direct such complaints to the appropriate authorities, the cases that come from the minutes of the CSCCC all follow through in investigation, prosecution, if there was a prosecution or no case. So we can start to delineate patterns of prosecution or lack of prosecution by dealing with these cases specifically. So the minutes of the first seven meetings of the CSCCC are missing, but from 26 April 1954 until the dis disbandment of the committee in November 1959, we have a full record of the cases reported. The Deputy Public Prosecutor and Undersecretary of Defense both attended the CSCCC. The minutes were widely circulated, copies going to all senior officials in Nairobi, including the governor and other members of the War Council, senior legal officials and ministers. Copies of the minutes also came back to London for the attention of the Secretary of the State of the Colonies. So, important though the records of the CSCCC are, I really need to emphasize that they are by no means represent representative of a complete account of all accusations made against the security forces. Only those that had first been formally notified to the Criminal Investigations Department, CID, then came to the CSCCC. In many instances, rape allegations were not the reason for the initial CID investigations, but only emerged as inquiries drew together a more complete picture of the circumstances of the event. So this tends to suggest that charges of rape were only rarely brought to the CID. Moreover, Though allegations of abuses from within the detention camps emerged at the time in letters written by detainees and sent to activists in Kenya and in Britain, who then sought to publicize its events, only one such complaint, that of the sexual abuse of a detainee at the women's reception camp at Kirigiti, found its way to the CSCCC. Now, this was because there was no formal bureaucratic re requirement to report complaints from the camps to any specified authority, in contrast with unexplained death at camps death in the camps, which was required to be notified to the police. So the experience of women detainees is quite a separate issue altogether. And while I also investigated the cases of camp-based violence, which are numerous, we decided to keep these narratives separate because of the different nature of the crimes, their the perpetrators, and prosecution. So dealing then with the non-camp-related incidences of sexual assault, the CSCCC papers now available to us record 56 separate sexual crimes spanning 1954 to 1959, the details of which I have on a table, which I'm going to pass out. Sorry, I don't have slides, but I do have this table. Can you maybe pass that yeah, out for me? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, yeah, you have to share. Not everybody can have one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, as evident from this table before you, or what will swiftly come before you, um, all the crimes that were reported were perpetrated by employees of the colonial administration or members of the security forces. There are 23 in cases which involved members of the Kenya police, another three cases related to the Kenya police reserve, and three to officers of the prison service. Tribal police were accused in six cases, and home guard in 10. 
In another case, the accused was a screening officer. And in the final case, the affiliation of the accused was not recorded. Military units, so that first section, British Army, King's African Rifles, and the Kenya Regiment featured in nine of the cases. So the incidence of reported cases shows a decline towards the end of the period. All but three cases occurred between 1954 and 1957. So in terms of outcomes, we know that from the 56 investigations, only 29 cases were prosecuted, and that in 24 cases, it was decided there was insufficient evidence to merit prosecution. In three cases, the records are incomplete, and we do not know the outcome. So that just gives you an idea of the table. So any interpretation of the sentencing patterns from the CSCC papers is complicated by a highly significant change in the sexual offenses legislation that was introduced in the emergency, so it must be mentioned. Um, in 1926 in Kenya, white settler anxieties about the threat posed to white women in Kenya from sexual assault by black males led the colonial governor to introduce legislation making rape a capital offense, meaning that such cases could only be heard before the Supreme Court. The penal code stipulated that rape was punishable by death or life imprisonment. The latter extended only even to those found guilty of attempted rape. Must make a little note here, though, that that is only rape of white women. Rape of black women was considered the just treatment was three years imprisonment, but it still had to be um, tried at the Supreme Court. So that stood, but the, treat the punishments would be different. There were still disputes about the relevance of the penal code that had been passed in 1926 in 1950s colonies, however. And in 1955, the Kenya administration quietly amended the penal code to lessen the penalties for rape. So since passing, this also made, made it so that the Supreme Court did not have to hear all rape allegations. So the passing of the law of the death penalty had only rarely been handed down in rape cases. Most recently in 1950, when three Africans hanged for the rape of an elderly white woman. Again, this would only be for a white woman. From December 1955, rape allegations no longer needed to go before the Supreme Court and could be heard before a magistrate in a lower court, applying a much lower tariff of penalties to those convicted. So I think it's very important to mention that uh, rape was lessened at this time. So of the 17 rape cases in which convictions recorded by the CSCCC, in nine cases the sentences were handed down before the change. These cases heard before the end of 1956 were certainly not prosecuted with the full force of law, and the change in legislation might be seen to reflect the reluctance of the Supreme Court judges to hand down harsh sentences for rape in the context of wartime, and also, again, go back to this racial distinction between victims. The reduction in the rate of conviction from 1956 also perhaps suggests that magistrates, too, in addition to the Supreme Court judges, were unwilling to tackle such cases with much vigor. So returning to the table, I'd like to discuss the wider context of the rape allegations reflected in these figures from the CSCCC papers for three categories of security services, the military, the Kikuyu Home Guard, and the police. Because of limited time today, I'm only going to discuss in detail the handling of rape charges against members of the military, which historically had the most complex attitude to the investigation of rape cases. In the early phase of the emergency, from October 1952 through to December 1953, abuses by the security forces were widespread. Kikuyu women fleeing into Nairobi in 19, November 1952 to avoid the flare-up of conflict in rural areas told the first stories of rape and assault by police officers and the military. By March 1953, 
Intelligence reports candidly admitted that soldiers were involved in, quote, inevitable pilfering and molesting of women in operations against the civilian population. When General Erskine arrived in Kenya in June 1953 to take command of the military, he was shocked by this ill-discipline and issued a warning to his soldiers that allegations made against them would be properly investigated. This turned out to be a hollow claim. Erskine's principal aim was to protect the reputation of the army, and while that did imply preventing abuses, it also involved minimizing the adverse publicity such cases attracted and the negative effects that they had upon service morale. Erskine therefore secured an agreement from the Attorney General that cases involving soldiers would be heard before military courts and would not go before civilian magistrates. The extent to which the military then pursued these investigations would not be subject to scrutiny other than the processes of cases being reported to the CSCCC. Military reluctance to open up rape allegations to criminal investigation was vividly seen in the McLean inquiry into the conduct of the British Army in Kenya held in closed sessions in Nairobi in December 1953. The terms of reference of this inquiry were restricted to the period of Erskine's command, meaning that Lieutenant General Sir Kenneth McLean was barred from investigating any reported incident that took place before July 1953. Soldiers giving evidence to McLean had to be repeatedly reminded of this general restriction. Moreover, the McLean inquiry refused to pursue the mentions of rape that were made in evidence, even telling one witness, quote, that is not the sort of thing we are concerned with. So despite the fact that the Army Act categorized rape as a serious offense, bracketing it alongside murder and manslaughter, a senior officer in the military police told the McLean inquiry that in Kenya, the Army treated rape as a minor crime in the same category as theft. Whenever rape was committed alongside other offenses, it was usual for the rape charges to be ignored, especially if those other offenses were deemed more serious. This was most glaring in the notorious case at Chuka in June 1953, when rapes by African soldiers of the King's African Rifles and their two British officers led to a confrontation with villagers in which 22 Kikuyu were killed. Compensation was paid to the families of the deceased, but no public mention was made of the rapes that had ignited the incident, and the military took active steps to suppress information about the event being released. These features of the handling of rape allegations by the military explain why so few were referred to the CSCCC, only nine cases being reported over a six-year period. The majority of these cases, six in all, arose in 1954, four being allegations of gang rape by African soldiers of the King's African Rifles. These gang rape cases all followed a similar pattern of investigation, each being reported first through the CID and then passed on to military authorities, who then showed a remarkable reluctance to proceed. Repeated requests from the CSCC for reports on investigations were ignored or excuses offered. These investigations lay within the military without resolution for periods greater than six months, and in one case for more than a year. In all four gang rape cases, military investigators ultimately declared that there was insufficient evidence to identify the culprits, and so the cases were all dropped without judicial action. However, a fifth case of gang rape, also from 1954, was handled very differently. This concerned three British soldiers of the Royal Engineers who were prosecuted by courts martial and convicted, each being sentenced to six years imprisonment. These were the harshest sentences handed down to any person convicted of rape during the Kenyan emergency. And in marked contrast to the delays in the four King's African Rifles gang rape cases, only eight weeks elapsed between the notification of this case and the sentencing of the convicts. 
Evidently, the army could move swiftly, even when it wanted to. The remaining military rape case from 1954 was an allegation against an individual soldier of the Kenyan regiment, a white settler. The case was also rapidly processed, there being only four weeks between the notification of the case and the court-martial hearing, at which the soldier was eventually acquitted. The archive documents do not offer us any explanation for the differences in processing the four King's African Rifles cases and the two concerning British accused from 1954, but there is an obvious racial distinction. Those cases involving white soldiers were hurried through the military courts, while those involving black African soldiers were the subject of de delay, prevarication, and ultimately deflection. The reason for this almost certainly lies in the contrast between the prevailing attitudes of the locally recruited King's African Rifles, whose commanders dismissed rape as a trivial offense, while General Erskine sought to protect the British Army regiments from further reputational damage by ensuring that such cases involving British soldiers were properly investigated. It is difficult, therefore, to avoid the conclusion that the pattern of prosecutions had a racial aspect. Rape allegations made against African rank and file were processed in a different way than those made against white soldiers of all ranks because different standards of behavior were applied by the military. This view is borne out by the remaining three cases involving military personnel spanning 1955-1957. The first from May 1955 saw a soldier of the Royal Engineers accused of sexual assault against a child at the town of Thika. Again, this case against a British soldier was rapidly investigated over a period of five weeks and the decision taken not to prosecute because of contradictory evidence. One month later, an officer of the Kenya Regiment was convicted for court-martial after another very speedy investigation by military officers. He was convicted of indecent assault and discharged after six months military detention. And the final military case reported by the Complaints Coordinating Committee from January 1957, an African private from the King's African Rifles was convicted of the attempted rape of a civilian woman as she was leaving the Langata military camp. This case, having occurred in a non-operational context and civil jurisdiction, and coming after the changes made to the penalties for rape in Kenya, went before the magistrate's court in Nairobi, where the conflict received a custodial sentence of 12 months. Remarkably, this is the only case recorded of the conviction of rape or sexual assault of an African in the military during, during Kenya's emergency. So in the case of the Home Guard, while presented frequently in oral testimonies collected, moral members of the Home Guard were rarely prosecuted or even investigated, as evident in the table with only 10 cases brought against Home Guard members. It is evident that similar to incidents of rape in the Algerian War in the 1950s, as described by Raphael Branche, these local militiamen were seen to have not only ample opportunity for sexual crimes, but also a higher degree of impunity. In each of the Home Guard cases presented the CSCCC, there's a considerable degree of delay, deflection, and even suppression of investigations. There was a common view that prosecutions of Home Guard members were more harmful than helpful, damaging the morale of security services, Prosecutions could undermine the counterinsurgency campaign, especially among African auxiliaries. Further squandering investigations and prosecution efforts, in January 1955, Governor Evelyn Berling halted all allegations made against members of the colonial administration by declaring general amnesty. So aside from the Home Guard and military, the last group prominent on the table is the police. These police were largely made up of local Kikuyu re recruits, and the character of the rape cases brought against the police is remarkably consistent. 
Nearly all of these alleged assaults occurred within a police station or in police vehicles, the women having been apprehended on some minor offense or on suspicion. The majority of the allegations concerned rape by two or three police officers together. Similar to home guard cases, tactics of delay and deflection are evident in the police cases. Of the 14 allegations recorded for 1955 and 1956, 11 went to trial, while from 1957 to 1959, only three out of 14 alleged assault were prosecuted. Um, there's another element to the poor numbers of prosecutions in these incidents of rape. It is very likely that the Kukuyu families of the victims of rape at the hands of Kukuyu home guards and police perpetrators may have viewed social remedies as a preferred alternative to legal procedures. Historian Tabitha Konogo describes rape and other forms of sexual assault as having known and well understood social remedies within Kikuyu society both economic and moral, imposed the community sanction against those who infringe the accepted norms. As Konogo explains, when a rape occurred, quote, it was the clan that was perceived to be of the grieved party, to be appeased, for the woman had no individual standing in the matter, cultural or legal. While Claire Robertson concludes that rape among Kukui was principally considered a violation of property. So in the 1950s, social remedies, in the form of a tariff or compensation, payable by those culpable to the family of the victim still remains open to any kikuyu. The existence of accepted social remedies in cases of rape may have deterred victims from seeking legal redress through the courts, but the breakdown of social order that the emergency brought to kikuyu areas made it unlikely that such sanctions could be enforced, least of all if the victims of the abuse were perceived to be rebels and therefore outcasts. This is not a matter to which the archival documents speak at all, but is clearly an issue that other research might address in deepening our understanding of the response to rape and other sexual crimes in colonial central Kenya. So I'll conclude the paper now by asking again some of these more general questions about the relevance of this paper to wider discourses of the conflict, the place of sexual violence as a weapon in militarized forces, and the prosecution of rape in times of war. While there has always been an awareness of rape's prevalence in wartime, it was really not until the 1990s that these crimes were dealt with separately as a weapon of war. In April 1946, when the International Military Tribunal for the Far East documented the infamous Rape of Nanking of December 1937, they estimated that some 20,000 women had been the victims of systematic military rapes by the Japanese army. The senior officials held responsible were charged for a generality of alleged acts, quote, carried out in violation of recognized customs and conventions of war, including mass murder, rape, and other barbaric cruelties but not for specific sexual crimes. The 1949 Geneva Convention was also explicit in enumerating rape as a distinct violation. Article 27 stated that women are, quote, protected against any attack on their honor, in particular against rape, enforced prostitution, or any form of indecent assault. This was seldom treated discreetly by lawyers in prosecuting war crimes over the following years until the 1990s. Scholars, notably Cynthia Enloe, have shown how military commanders have worked to maneuver raped victims into distinct civilian categories that seek to minimize or exonerate the stigma attached to the crime. The military deploy rape, she argues, to assist in their own military causes. Segregation of rape perpetrators in 1950s Kenya into different institutional and racial categories can thus be seen as an illustration of Enlo's central argument. The reluctance to prosecute rape in Kenya in the 1950s was not then because of a lack of awareness of the significance of rape in wartime, but it does fit with a broader pattern of denial from this period. 
Susan Brown Miller, in her pioneering study of the Pakistan Army's invasion of Bangladesh in 1971, where an estimated 300,000 civilian women were raped by soldiers, she has argued that contemporary evidence on rape and conflicts from the 20th century is not even difficult to come by. And very often, we have known about it at the time. In September 1945, Time magazine had candidly told its readers that in the Allied assault on Berlin, quote, our own army and the British army, along with ours, have done their share of looting and raping. We, too, are considered an army of rapists. For the Vietnam War II, after three decades of official amnesia, we now have Gina Weaver's 2010 monograph on rape on the US Army. Alarmed by American silence over these sexual crimes, Weaver nonetheless located volumes of testimony on America's dirty secret, including, quote, the horrific and detailed accounts of sexual violence from US Army veterans recorded in the Winter Soldier investigation of January 1971 and logged on the congressional record later that year. So as journalist and historian Nick Terse has observed, America has known these things all along. So why then did it take 40 years for them to be written about and discussed? Since the opening of rape discourses with the Balkans and Rwandan conflicts, historians are thankfully reconsidering histories of the place and prevalence of rape in past wars. But this does not change the fact of how poorly these crimes are prosecuted before 1990. Also, as I mentioned at the start of this paper, we must be careful to not generalize discourses of rape based on a balkanized model. Rape is not the same mass weapon of war in each and every conflict, but that does not mean that it does not occur or that its prevalence should be overlooked and trivialized. There's no single explanation for how and when rape during wartime will be prosecuted. The historical record from Kenya and elsewhere suggests that regardless of frequency, severity, or even verifiability of victims' claims, wartime rape is often only prosecuted when it is politically or military expedient to do so. So thanks, I'll now answer some questions.